I'm going to share with you uh, the first line of our Parsha Ha'azinu, which is the song of one of the two major songs in the Bible, one being the Shirat Hayam, and this one being at the end of Deuteronomy. It's interesting, we could talk about song and music and the difference between music and song. There was a, a philosopher of music, Victor Zuckerkandl, who wrote that hearing a melody is hearing, having heard, and being about to hear all at once. So every melody declares to us that the past can be there without being remembered, the future without being foreknown. And I think that that's really true. Music is a kind of sensed continuity that breaks through the most overpowering disconnections in our experience of time. And as we go through this high holy days, year after year and get older, we also experience this disconnection of time that creeps up on us. <laughs> so if we look at this verse, it's a, it's a dipstick, it's in two parts. Give ear, O heavens, and in the uh, cohortative, let me speak. And let the earth hear, Imre Fi, uh, the words I utter, a beautiful biblical parallelism. And the rabbis go to town on the difference between Daber and Amira and Daber, right? Kosomar Leves Yaakov, the rabbi says to the women because it's soft, but Tagaid Lebene Israel is hard. So Davar, Daber, soft and hard. Also, Shemaim and Oretz are paralleled here. Ha'azinu, laha'azin, to give ozen, to give an ear, verse sishma, to listen, to hear. So the rabbis compare these two and say they're not just a nice poetic biblical parallelism, but if I can share with you Rashi, Rashi would say, ha'azinu ha'shemaim, hear ye heavens, meaning that this whole Pasha, this song is going to be a witness against Am Yisrael. It's an exhortation that Moshe Rabbeinu is le leaving us with and instructing everyone to learn this song by heart because it will be a witness when the times go bad and people will Will, will violate the law and the bad things will happen to them, then this song will be the witness. And who are the witnesses? Well, he's appealing to the eternal heaven and earth because we won't be around. Our children will be listening and misbehaving. And so he's going to use the heaven and the earth as the witnesses. I warn Israel that you be witnesses to this matter because I have told them that you will be witnesses. Similarly, let the earth hear. Why did he call heaven and earth as witnesses? He thought, I'm of flesh and blood, I'm mortal. Tomorrow I'll be dead. And if the Israelites will once say, we never accepted the covenant, who can come to refute them? Ah, I'm calling heaven and earth to do that. And that's Rashi to explain what what really is a very dark kind of 
uh, Deuteron Deuteronomist's approach to what uh, what is going to be in the future, as if the Deuteronomist is saying, well, you know, bad things did happen, and here it is, here it is. Now, the Sifri, written around four five hundred, is looking at the Khurban in a post-Khurban landscape where we have lost hegemony over Eretz Yisrael, we've lost the temple, and now look at the way the tone of the Sifri, the Midrash, the congregation of Israel is destined to say before God, there is no hope. My witnesses for the prosecution remain and testify. So we've turned it around. The way Rashi had quoted the Tanchuma, I'm using, Moshe Rabbein saying, I'm using this as a witness against you. Now we're going back to God after the Churban and say, you know, we've got nowhere to go because heaven and earth is eternal. And they are still standing there pointing at us as witnesses. And now look what happens. God will respond. You know what? I'll remove them. As it says in Isaiah, before I'm creating a barashamayim chadasha, a new heaven and a new earth. So don't worry about them. <laughs> I'll get rid of them. I'm going to create the world anew. Then Israel will say, but God, I see places where I went astray and acted shamefully because it says in Yirmiyahu, see your ways in the valley, know what you have done. So when I go past that valley, that's another witness to me. And he'll respond as it says, every valley will be raised from Handel's Messiah, right? That every valley will be completely uprooted. So don't worry about the valley. Don't worry about that witness. Then Israel will say, but my name remains, and he'll respond, okay, I'll remain, I'll remove your name. You'll be called by a new name. Okay, and I will remove it. And then they'll say, Israel is destined to say, but you have already written in Jeremiah, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, the halacha is she can't go back to the original guy. She can go back to him if he hasn't married someone else. In fact, the Torah valorizes a divorcee returning to each other, but not if he's married someone else. So he can't go back to her. Did, did I not write a man? And have I not told you in Hosea, I am a God and not a man? So God says, don't compare me to a man. I'm not a man. So it's not about a case of divorce. <laughs> and it's already written. Where is your mother's bill of divorce by which I sent her away? I already told you in Deutero Isaiah, I never wrote you a bill of divorce. Where's the divorce? You can come back. It's a beautiful, beautiful healing medrash to an otherwise very dark song of testimony against Am Yisrael. And we could say today, after 2,000 years of suffering, uh, it's about bloody time. It's about bloody time. Okay. Now, I want to share with you today a vort from the Rebbe of Rujin, the Rijiner. Now, Rebbe Yisrael of Rujin is a very controversial Rebbe. He's a direct descendant of Rebbe Dov Ber, the Magid of Mezrich, the main disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. And his father, Rebbe Sholem Shachner of Brohobis, died when he was only six years old. And the Rujiner Rebbe set a regal tone for his 
Hof, his court. Most Rebbers were dirt poor, and the Noemeli Melech says, at the end of the day, there's not a penny left that's given to me on my table that I haven't distributed. But the Rishina felt, and this was, you know, in the early 1800s, that the Jews were so downtrodden in Russia, we needed to show malchus. We needed to give them a sense of self-identity, self-validation. And so he lived in a palatial home with splendid furnishings, riding in a silver, some say gold-handled carriage drawn by four white horses. It's out of a fable. Being accompanied by an entourage of attendants, wearing a golden yarmulke and stylish clothing with solid gold buttons, not like a regular Rebbe. In addition to his thousands of Hasidim, he did wield significant political influence in the Ukraine and Volhynia through the marriage of his six sons and four daughters who married into other Hasidic Rebbe courts as wealth and also marrying into wealthy uh, banking families. Now, he had an extravagant lifestyle and prestige, but on his deathbed, he was mated. His testament was that this never got to my head and that, in fact, he had no soles under his golden slippers. So his feet were always on the ground and bleeding to show that it wasn't for himself that he did it, but to show the chashivas of Am Yisrael. And this lifestyle aroused the envy of Tsar Nicholas I. So the Ruzhina now comes into the political arena of Tsar Nicholas I and the, and the ire of the Jewish Baskilim. And they continually plotted to bring about his downfall like they did to other Rebbes. And in 1838, at the height of a two-year investigation of the murder of two informers, the Rebbe was accused of complicity in the murder of these informers. Now, you know, there, there's a whole genre of literature about how we deal with uh, uh, informers all the way down to the Holocaust and the camps. And the Rebbe was accused of complicity in the murders of these informers. By the way, in Satmar, what you, you take care of the informers in the mikveh. Now, the, the mikveh in Satmar is very hot. And so the informers go to the mikveh because they, they're informers, but they're regular Hasidim. They go into the mikveh, but they don't come out. That's how Satmar dealt with informers. And the Rebbe was accused of complicity and jailed by the Tsar. He was released after two years and put under police surveillance, since the Tsar believed that he was fomenting an opposition to the government. And so he was fled to Austria. And in Austria, they tried to extradite him. And so Ferdinand I, the king, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, got involved. And for 10,000 pachazuka, 10,000 ducats or florins, he bought his citizenship and then moved uh, to Sadigura, which is in Bukovina in the Carpathian Mountains, where he built another palace. He spent his time there and reestablished his court there and drew thousands of followers from Galicia, Russia, and Romania. And all the Jews in Sadigura became Rizhina Hasidim. Now, he was also active in Israel as the president of Kollel Volin. Remember, in 1777, 
both the Talmudim of the Vilnagon and the Talmudim of the uh, Magid and the Baal Shem Tov, mainly Mir Pinchas of Koritz and Rabbi Menachem Mendel of the Tepst, moved to Svat and then on to Tiberias because they got kicked out. And now some of the Rishon Hasidim uh, came to Yushalayim, to the old city. And he initiated the construction of the Tiferes Yisrael Synagogue in Jerusalem. This was known as the Nisimbak Synagogue. And here is the picture of it, named after the Rishonah. But his Gabbai, the Nisimbak, or Bek, in fact, was the one that did the fundraising. Now, this place was meant to be, this plot was meant to be a monastery built by Tsar Nicholas uh, I. And so the Rebbe gave Beck the task of thwarting the Tsar's attempt. And he managed to buy the land from its Arab owners for an exorbitant sum merely days before the Tsar ordered the Russian consul in Jerusalem to make the purchase. And the Tsar was forced to buy a different plot of land, which then became what we know today as you go to the old city, the Russian compound. Now, there's a wonderful story about Nissenberg. And it's a legend. It's said that when Kaiser Franz Josef went to visit the old city of Jerusalem to build the Augusta Victoria Hospital on the Mount of Olives, he passed the Tiferes Synagogue because it was Austro-Hungarian. And Nissenbach, he had enough money, it took 10 years to collect funds to build it. It, it. it was built very slowly. Unfortunately, it was destroyed in the 48 and then rebuilt. And so it had the building and without the dome. And so this is a legend, but I love it. So the Kaiser says to Nissenbach, uh, what happened to the roof? And Nissenbach said, your honor, and I'm just going to demonstrate what the legend said. He said, it has taken off its yarmulke to you. And the Kaiser was so impressed by the, by the gesture that Nissenbach took off his yarmulke and bowed to the Kaiser. The reason it has not been completed because he knew he knew you were coming, that he, that he gave him the money to finish the Nissenbach shawl. This was a very colorful, colorful Rebbe and left a lineage of children, including the Boyana Rebbe today, who was a very young Rebbe in Yushalayim, the Husiatin, who was a Zionist, another Rebbe who became a Mastil uh, that David Asaf talks about. Um, they had to find him and bring him back. The Boyana Rebbe, the Sadigura Rebbe, a whole dynasty of Rishna Hasidim. And so I want to continue our discussion of Hazinu from Rashi's quote of Hazinu as a kind of testimony against Am Yisrael through to the Sifri, which is basically a lament and God giving us this kind of words of comfort. Don't worry, there'll be no mention of it. Never mind what the words say. Let's look at the way the Rishon Rebbe talks in his book, Irin Kadishin, on the words Hazino HaShemayim Ba'ataberu. And he starts, this is his fourth discourse on, on this posuk, and he goes off on a tangent. And he says, you know, 
I'm going to give you a moshal. I'm going to give you a story, a fictional narrative that will explain to you where I'm going with this. And there are two in Yanim that we, he's going to cite. The first one is the Gemara in Brochus 34. The place where a Bale Tshuva stands, even a Tzadik Gomor doesn't even come close. Now, all of the go crazy about this. What on earth are you talking about? How can you put them on the same level? This guy is an Oisvark. He came from the red light district. He suddenly had a horror. I'm going to be from. And you're telling me that that is on the same level as a Tzadik Gomu who hasn't left the base Medrash, has never tasted of sin all his life. And the second thing he says is what we see in our time. Now, obviously, he's now referring to the difference between the tzaddikim, the rebbers of the Hasidic dynasty, and the misnagdim who spend their time in the intellectual pursuit of Torah. Our the tzaddikim in our generations, How do you explain that we don't have that kind of hasmada? that kind of attachment and commitment, the way the tzaddikim of previous generations, meaning there's been a Yerida of the Doros. And how do we explain this? And nevertheless, after 2000 years of Talmudic Judaism, these Hasidim of the latter day have been given the gift of the secrets of Torah from the Baal Shem Tov and it's only in the last few hundred years. How do you explain that? If it's a Yerida Tadorot, why should they be uh, exposed to the Rose HaTorot? These are the two questions that he poses. And he tells me, I'm going to give you a story of two kings. And with this explanation, I will answer my two questions of the Bale Tshuva and the Tzadikim Gemurim. And why is it that in our latter generations, we have been privileged, even though we don't learn Torah Bahasmoda, to the secrets of Torah? And I think he's talking about his, and this is just my fantasy, that he's talking about his experience with two types of kings in Europe. The one type of king is Tsar Nicholas I, who inherited the crown from Maria Theresa, from Russia, and Ferdinand I. These are two hereditary emperors. That's the first time. All the way going back, he's inherited the kingdom. Now he's inherited the kingdom and he becomes king. Now this type of king, he finds everything ready-made for him. He just has to step in. Prince Charles just has to step into the Yerusha. He doesn't have to do anything. It's all ready-made. It's well-oiled. Whether it's the palace, whether it's the, the, the royal accoutrements that come along with it, you know, the crown and the scepter, the halavushim 
or the royal garments. It's already ready for him. Nothing to worry about. Step into it. And the administration. You should know that by 1848, Austria-Hungarian Empire was now really a big empire and paralleled the Russian Empire. And Vienna became the center of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And my father, who was born there, tells me that it was just full of civil servants. There was no manufacturing in Vienna. It was pure civil servants running the empire until 1914. Below Tircha he walks into a new administration. All the advisors are there. The court is there. He has to do nothing. It doesn't take much for him then to take over the reins and carry on. And I think now he's talking about Napoleon. Napoleon died, what, 1823, right? And he has conquered Europe and caused revolutions. Because of him is are the, all the revolutions of the bourgeoisie, 1848. A self-made man, a self-made emperor. didn't come from royal blood. It was through his own personal effort going up the ranks and taking it over. By overcoming many, many countries. He's conquering countries. Of course he's talking about Napoleon. Until he becomes the emperor of all Europe. Now this kind of king, he had to work very hard. This wasn't something you just stepped into. Nothing was ready. Where is he going to get it from? He has to establish for himself all the accoutrements of empire. He has to develop the civil service and the palace at Versailles and this and that. Napoleon designed his own uh, his, his own frocks and gowns. Okay. And now, the greatness of the empire, the greatness of the palace, all depends on his seichel, because he made he's a self-made man. You must read book, Simon Shama's book, the Oxford historian Simon Shama, S C H A M A, on Napoleon. So now you can see there's a whole different typology of personality between the Melech who just walks into his, uh, into his throne and crown and this kind of emperor that is self-made. Okay, now, step two. Now he wants to he wants to make a palace. He can't do it on his own. He's a soldier. He's an officer. He's a general. So what does he do? 
Omanim Habakim Betev Inyane Hamalchus. So he wants, first of all, a civil servant. So he's got to find people who've been in the foreign service, in the civil service. He wants to build a palace. He's got to invite the guilds, the electrician guild, the bricklayers guild, the plumbers guild. And so then he has in his head what he wants the palace to look like. So he shows them the plan. He shows them a picture of what he wants, and they translate it into reality. And of course, that translation into reality is totally dependent on the picture that he shows them of the architectural plans. Totally dependent on that. Now, even though he's a very great intellect and he knows exactly what his palace should look like, it's not possible for him to make that from a potential idea and a dream into a reality without taking without taking a piece of paper and drawing on the paper, his vision can't stay in his head. That's just his dream. So even before he goes to those umanim, those workers, he's got to take it from his head and write it down on a piece of paper. The design of his frock. So he sent it to the designer. The design of the palace, he sent it to the umanim. Why? And he says something interesting here, because the nimshal, obviously, you know already. It's easier for him to take speech from his thought to the paper, from then taking the speech from the thought to his speech, meaning in order to give over to them, it's much better to put it on paper than just to talk to them. And they will go according to know what he said to them. I want to make a big building this way and this way. Show us the paper. That's the best way. And now he comes to the nimshal, Well, I didn't find this nimshal so clear. So I want you to go with me in our style and see how close the moshal and the nimshal is working. The Rishina says, it's obvious. He's saying that the Torah is that blueprint. So the higher worlds and the lower worlds are based on the blueprint. Now we know from Midrash, that the Torah was created 2,000 years before the creation of the world. Okay, so God is looking into the Torah. Now, what we heard in Midrash is that from that blueprint, he created the world, this world, the earth, and, and the skies, not the upper worlds. The original says, no, 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 no. He created both worlds. From the blueprints, Olamos, he created all the world, all reality. 
spiritual reality and physical reality from that blueprint. So he's making this very radical statement, which only starts really in our mystical literature, that there is a revealed Torah and there's a hidden Torah within the Torah. We've talked about the Or Haganuz. And in that hidden Torah is the blueprint from these spiritual worlds. Ah, it's not the physical parchment that you and I look at. There is a there is a metaphorical Torah of black fire on white fire. He's saying something very profound. He's saying, I don't look out into nature to see the world's structure. There's a periodic table of the elements. You don't see that when you look on a grass. You have to go behind it with a microscope and a spectroscope to analyze the elements, right? We have science, physical science, that tells us that what you see isn't just what you see, that there is a blueprint. The periodic table is a blueprint for the physical world. Well, he's saying that the Torah is a kind of spiritual periodic table by which looking into the black fire on the white fire in the behind the Torah's physical worlds, I can understand what's going on upstairs. Ki ha-Torah hi besod shishim ribaosis. We've talked about it. There are 600,000 letters in the Torah. The nitztarfu osis and they are recombined in every level from the physical world going up to the spiritual world. Okay. So the first statement he makes in the Nimshal is that from this blueprint, I can understand the whole world. Meaning, if I go now and I look at the blueprint of the emperor, I will understand exactly what he created in his palace and everything else. What happened to the first king? I'm going to ask you to think about that. He's talking about the second king here. It was only the second king that made the blueprint because he had to start from scratch. The first king walked into the palace. So we're going to come back to that disconnect between the marshal and the nimshal. Now, this is for someone who wants to understand the world by looking into the Torah. And now comes the radical statement of the Rishna Rebbe, the Heilige Rishna, and the radical statement which really only started with the Baal Shem HaKodesh, is the following. This approach to understanding the upper worlds and the lower worlds is only for those who need to look into the Torah. But for someone who has already refined his physicality and can see through it, as we learned in the Mori 9 yesterday, he can see through it into the translucent nature of the physical by refining his spiritual self. There is no iron curtain that separates him 
from his inner spiritual self. He has access to his inner neshama, the chelek imal, the piece of godliness that comes all the way down from up there that's sitting inside him. It came all the way from the throne of the chariot. And so he, by looking inside himself, can understand the form that made the, the tzura that made the yotra. He can re-retrograde, retrofit the engineering and go back and say, okay, by looking at my body, which is a microcosm of the world, by refining it, by looking through its translucence, I can see the blueprint. I can see the blueprint in my own soul. It's just an unbelievable Torah. As I machnas godel or nishmasen, to the degree that you have reflecting and have the, uh, the, the spiritual acuity to look into your soul, You'll understand everything. You are a microcosm. And if you could just refine the physical dross externality, you could see the periodic table inside you. Now, there are some scientists who have told me when they look at an object, they actually can actually tell me right away, you know, the periodic elements in it. They're so refined in their analysis, right? Now he goes back to the original interpretation. Now he's going to interpret that Gemara in Brochus. Where the Baal Tshuva stands, not even a big Tamil can stand. He's not talking about a Balchuva that just came out from the red light district and said, Oh, I've had a hero of Chuva. I'm now a Balchuva. Rabbi, take me in. I'm a good boy. He doesn't talk about that. How could you compare him to a Tzadik that never tasted of sin in his life? It doesn't make sense. Elo, Pirusho. So, what does it really mean? This is a real switch on the Gemara. It's a taich on the Gemara, very radical. Pirusho, Baal Tshuva Hukach. The Baal Tshuva is this guy. It's the guy who has refined his physical dross body. There's no iron curtain separating him from the translucent soul. I can see within myself the periodic table of the higher spiritual worlds. So that automatically he knows all the spiritual permutations of the letters by which the 600,000 letters of Torah because he is one of those 600,000 permutations. And now, fasten your seatbelts. When he now reads the Torah, 
He recognizes everything that he did the inner work with. This is the second emperor who had to conquer the countries, which means conquer his own desires, until he comes to this point where I'm giving you a piece of paper to build the worlds with. When this Balchuva, not in the sense of an oisvav, but someone who has shov, he has refined himself, looks into the blueprint, what does he do? It's an act of recognition. When he looks into the Torah, he recognizes all the work he's done. Oh yeah, that's the blueprint of the upper palace. Oh yeah, that's the blueprint of the world down below. He's recognizing in the Torah that which he had already seen in himself. It's a different, what kind of religion is this? This is a complete reworking of, of, of rational Judaism. It's a mystical Judaism by which the Torah is in me. The Abishta is in me. And I can see in me by recognizing in the Torah those same Sirufim. Someone who recognizes the Binyan from himself, he knows already what the plans are. I recognize those blueprints. I know exactly how it works because I am a microcosm. That's what it means. Bale Tshuva owned him. He says, He went up to the Olam Elyon inside himself, then came back down and now reckoned. That's the Tshuva. The Baal Tshuva is someone who's able to go up and come down, up and down. See the blueprints in himself, go up and say, yep, that's what it is. Okay. And then the second, the second one is, how is it possible that today we are able to access the Rose of Torah, which the previous generations couldn't? He says, well, again, it's the same understanding. If you've done that inner work, which we've only done in the last few hundred years, everything that the tzaddikim in the original days had to steig to, and to understand. And now he comes back. Now he's going to come back to this radical rewording of the word. What is Shemaim? What is Aretz? Ki HaShemaim hu kinui le'olamos elyonim. Okay, we know that. Everyone says that. The Shemaim isn't just the heavens. That's this world. HaShemaim is the inner world. The olamos elyonim, the supernal world. Rotsaloma she'im. Now here it is. This is the condition Moshe Rabbeinu is telling us. Complete radical rereading. If a person can only refine and purify his physical body and his materiality, and he can dissolve that iron curtain between the body and the soul, so Azai Yochol. So we started off by saying, Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, I take you witness, Hazinu, 
because I won't be around. And you're my witness as to the wayward nature of Am Yisrael. The Rishonah says just the opposite. Hazinu Hashemayim. If you can resolve that contradiction between the body and the soul and you can refine it, then you will be able, I'm guaranteeing you, the Torah is saying, Ha'azinu, you will be able to listen to be able to hear the supernal worlds. You will be able to recognize in this text, in this very text, you know, the Magid said that the whole of the Torah is, is encapsulated in Hazinu. The song of Hazinu is the whole Torah. And the Ishbit says, and the whole of Hazinu, give me a posseg in Hazinu. He tells, he asks of Shiska, give me in, in the song of Hazinu, what's the spitz? What's the one posseg that reflects the whole of Hazinu, which reflects the whole of Torah? Ki chelik Hashem Amo. We have a chelik of the Ebishter in ourselves. That's the spitz of the whole Torah. Oh, if that's the case, then if I've refined myself, I will recognize in the osius of Torah, I will recognize the worlds. Machbas Godel or Nishmasa because of my exalted Nishama. Meaning, I've done the inner work. I can hear the Olamus Elyonim. Now I come back to the physical text of Torah. The Adabeu, Rotzeloba, She'achakach, Kishiroe, Betorah, now listen to this, fasten your seatbelts, because this is the point. Azai memela medaberes boha Torah b'tzirufe shemos of Now the Torah speaks to you, not just to the Am Yisrael, but to your particular soul. Because if you know the hallways and the structure and 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 the the the. The palace itself, you know the ins and outs of the palace. Why? You were there. You were a Baltashuva. You go up and down, and you you in your soul you search and you know that. Then when you are reading the Torah, Memela Medaberet Boha Torah Bitsiruf Shemoser. However, if you haven't done that inner work, and here is the warning, which is the Gashmias Vahavis, if you only listen to the physical periodic table, to the geology and the science and everything that's observable, but not inside you, because you haven't done that inner work, as I you're just going to hear the halachas and the steiging and the gemaras and the mishnah. You're not going to hear the inner worlds. You're not going to hear the light. You're just going to read the stories and Abraham and Jacob, and you're going to follow the literary path and and just be a bean counter and do the externals. You're just going to settle with that. It's a dazzling, it's a dazzling prisoner. Which leaves us with the one question. What did he bring the story about the first king for? What does the first king represent? If the second king represents the Napoleonic struggle to be kovesh all the countries, and then needing the blueprints, what's in his head, to build the palace and the clothes and the, the articles of governance, 
So then what is the nimshal about that first king? Who's the first king? Clearly, we don't know of a tzaddik ben tzaddik who could just walk into those realms because his father did. You need to do the inner work of refining. And so I have to go back to the fact that he says 2,000 years before the world was created, God looked into the blueprint to create the world. So we have to now, in a radical way, say that the two kings are God. That the second king is the Rabbi Shalom who looked into this world of Olam HaShofelazer. And in order to create it, he looked into the Torah. So what's the first king? So Kabbalah tells us that the word Bereshis Barola King starts with a base. This world and this Torah is a mere reproduction of a primordial Torah and a primordial world. And those are the, the realm of the seven kings, as Kabbalah tells us. The only way I can understand this original Torah is by saying, in the first creation, the Sheva Malochim, the Abishtur created worlds and then destroyed them. And every time he destroyed them, he moved into the palace again. But he saw that that kind of hereditary malthus didn't produce anything. Right? The, the Torah says in Genesis, these seven kings, it was a ruling and then he dies, and the ruling and he dies, meaning. It didn't give him the satisfaction. Why? He wanted us to do the inner work. And so with this creation, he creates a Napoleonic universe in which he looked into the blueprint of this Torah and said, okay, this one, I'm going to take an experiment with humanity. And I think that that's the deeper explanation of why he used both paradigms of both kings that it's this creation is the napoleonic creation whereas the previous seven creations were the hereditary creations we should all come into sukkahs and realize that we go into the sukkah which is the sukkah de Manusa, that we're given that gift of zikokantara by going into the sukkah you are given under the schach this magical ability to see into your own schach, into your own spirituality, should all have a wonderful simchas yontav and access the deepest parts of our neshama. Good yontav, good yontav.